0: Today on Family Shield, we'll explore the links between dragon myths and the reality of dinosaurs. Did you know there are dragon legends in nearly every culture, from China to Australia, India to Europe, the Americas, and Persia to the kingdoms of the fiercest Norse warriors. Eyewitnesses to these dinosaurs include Job from the Bible, Alexander the Great, and Marco Polo. There are drawings on cave walls and on ancient art show images that clearly resemble dinosaurs. We'll revisit history as we talk about these creatures. Whether battling saints or terrorizing medieval castles, these creatures provide a fascinating link to man's earliest history. My husband, Chadden Meyer, will co-host the program with me today. We recently returned from a trip where we visited the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. While we were there, we attended a presentation by Bodie Hodge. He's the author of Dragons, Legends, and Lore of Dinosaurs. He's also our guest for today's program. This is Kay Meyer, president of Family Shield Ministries and your co-host for today's program. Welcome, Bodhi. Thank you so much for being our guest today.
1: Hey, it's great to be on the show.
0: Well, we appreciate it. And as I said, my husband and I uh, heard you uh, and uh, loved the presentation. In fact, as we were talking today, we both said it was the highlight of our trip. So uh, thank you so much for all that you do and you make it so interesting. And we know today will be a great program as well. So tell us why you wrote your book.
1: Well, you know, we were pretty excited about it. Uh, When when you actually start to look at dinosaurs from a biblical viewpoint, stepping back, starting with the Bible to understand dinosaurs, it gets really exciting. You know, I was one of those kids who really enjoyed dinosaurs as a kid, but at the same time, I was taught a lot of what the secular world taught me, and I struggled with that. So when, when I realized, hey, the Bible makes sense of dinosaurs, the Bible makes sense of dragons, um, I really wanted to keep all that research, put that together, and turn it into a book. So when I got a chance to do that, it was it was really exciting for me.
0: That is super, and that's what we found so interesting as well. One of the things, uh, Bodhi, that I found extremely
2: interesting was when you were talking about species of animals, when you used the phrase in-kind, and that opened up some doors for me as to how you would fit all the animals on the ark i always knew that there had to be small animals but at the same time you kind of question you know every animal in the world all the species of animals and you clarified that can you help our listeners understand a little bit better that
1: Yeah, you know, nowadays we classify animals by their species and their genus and their family. That's part of the Linnaean classification system. And when it comes down to species, there's a lot of species. You know, for example, dogs, you know, we have a lot of dog species. You have wolves, um, you know, several different types of wolf species, red wolf, for example, several coyote species and dingoes. All the domestic dogs are actually one species. Now, Noah didn't have to take all the species of those dogs on board the ark. According to the Bible, you took the kind on board the ark. And that's the Hebrew word mean, M-I-N, is kind of how we transliterate that. But it's basically a sort. In other words, if things can interbreed together, they're part of the same kind. Now, if we just look at those dogs I just talked about, wolves and coyotes and dingoes and domestic dogs, they can all interbreed together. They're part of the same one dog kind. So Noah only required two dogs on board Noah's Ark. That whole family of dogs, all the dogs we have today are the descendants of those two dogs are all actually related. And that's the way we need to start looking at a lot of these different uh, animals. We need to look at the different dinosaur kinds. We need to look at the elephant kind. We need to look at the horse kind, which includes zebras, for example, when we think of animals going on board the ark. Because you know it was required to take the kinds on board the ark, not what we define as modern day species. And uh, that significantly reduces the numbers. But, yeah, they would easily fit on board Noah's Ark when we did the research.
2: And that's what made my light bulb go wild. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking on on the dragons. Did Noah actually have dragons as well as dinosaurs, or would they be one and the same on the Ark?
1: Well, let me explain the word dragon and the word dinosaur, because sometimes people don't understand those definitions. A dinosaur, for example, is defined as a land reptile that has one of two hip structures so that it stands up off the ground. Now, things like crocodiles, komodo dragons, or monitor lizards, by definition, they are not considered dinosaurs because their legs come out to the side and their body naturally rests on the ground, so they're not considered dinosaurs. Now, when it comes to something like a dragon, dragon was more of an overarching term. It would include flying reptiles and sea reptiles and big serpentine reptiles. Even crocodiles, by definition, can be classed as a dragon. Now, dinosaurs could also be called dragons. So that's kind of a little little point in here. All the dinosaurs technically can be called a dragon, but not all the dragons necessarily fit the description of a dinosaur. Now, what Noah had to take on the ark were the land-dwelling, air-breathing animals. So that would have included the land reptiles which included the dinosaurs, because remember by their definition, they're land reptiles that have those hip structures. So yeah, the dinosaur kinds, those various kinds, like a stegosaur kind, a triceratops kind. Like if you think of a triceratops, it's part of the ceratopsian kind. There's a protoceratops and a torosaurus. just the same way we had those dogs in variation, same thing with the ceratops. The um, same sort of thing with the sauropods. We have brachiosaur and diplodocus and And, uh, you know, in in old-fashioned terms, people used to say brontosaurus, uh, but really it's the brachiosaur. But those are just variations within the same sauropod kind. So when you look at dinosaurs and dragons, some dragons would have been on board the ark, the land-based ones but not necessarily the sea-based ones, for example. So the, the key is looking at the terminology. Dragon is more of an overarching term. Now, I know as soon as we throw out dragon, people want to say, oh, but aren't dragons a myth? Because we've all been taught that. And that might be a good thing to talk about uh-huh. at this point. Um, dragons, if you look historically, everybody viewed them as real creatures. Uh, I mean, you look at North and South America, you look at continents uh, all over the place, the Middle East, Europe, Asia, they all viewed dragons as real creatures. It's been a modern idea, really, going back about 100, 120 years ago now, where people really started saying, oh, well, dragons are a myth. And the whole reason they said dragons are a myth is because you don't see them anymore. Right. What What gets me is, why didn't people say, well, they've gone extinct? I mean, that seemed to completely escape people's ideas that they've gone extinct. But uh, from about the 1500s to the 1800s, we saw a massive decline in encounters with dinosaur dragon-like creatures. And that's because they've been killed off. We've destroyed their habitat. A lot of the old accounts had them living near swamps. We've drained swamp ground for 500 years, you know, to make farm ground and so forth. So we've destroyed their habitat. And then in the 1800s, people started saying, hey, we don't see hardly, these things hardly anymore. I mean, there was a couple of accounts, but uh, people just started saying, well, I guess they're a myth. I guess the idea that they went extinct just totally escaped people. Now, modern ideas about some of the dragons, you know, you might think of the movie series like Harry Potter, or you might think of How to Train Your Dragon, some of these ones that have come out. Those are purely mythological dragons. They're not real. Mm -hmm. Um, But historically, I mean... Scientists, historians, commentators, they all view dragons as real creatures. And on top of that, the Bible actually mentions dragons a number of times in the Old Testament.
2: Right, right. And what's unusual is even across the river in Illinois, you have the legend of the Thunderbird. Yes. And its pictorial is on the face of a cliff.
1: Yeah, the Piassov, that uh, particular creature, I mean, that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years when some of the early French explorers came up the river and they saw that, they're like, oh, wow, look at this. You couldn't miss it. Yeah, <laughs> And I I actually grew up in western Illinois, not too far from that. And of course, that rock face has fallen down and they painted some others up there and then that fell down and they put another one up there. But some of the old journal entries, you can see this was a dragon-like scaly creature with uh, reptilian features, mm-hmm. and the reason that the Native tribes hated that creature is that came down and took some of their children, and finally they set an ambush for it, and they were able to kill it, but they hated it so much that that rock face, when they would come by the rock face, they would always throw rocks at it. <laughs> <laughs> they still were mad at it, and that, that's one of the reasons it was so fragile and, and fell down at one stage. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: So uh, you talked a bit about Well, we talked about the stories and the pictures that are around, but I thought it might be interesting for the listeners just to ask you, what did Job say about the Leviathan in the Bible? And I've got the verse written out. Um, Was that a description of the dinosaur and also that uh, the term dinosaur was not used until the mid-1800s? Is that correct? Correct, yeah. Yeah, so could I read that and you just uh, talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's interesting that it sounds so much like a dinosaur. I know there's a couple places. Uh, I've got it here and I could read, I think it's Job 41, and then you could make some comments about that. Would that be all right? Yeah, there's
1: actually uh, two of them in there. In Job 40 and in Job 41, it talks about two critters, which are just fascinating. In Job 40, it talks about one called behemoth. And that behemoth is a land creature. Now it'll go out into a flooding Jordan River, but then it migrates to the mountains and so forth. But this creature is a massive creature, and by its description, it's very similar to that of a dinosaur. Uh, you might think of something like a sauropod. Uh, it's got a tail that moves like a cedar, you know, it kind of sways uh, in that fashion. You know, And you'll look at some of that description. I mean, it's the chief or the first of the ways of God. And you you compare something like a sauropod to an elephant or even a hippo, things like that. It just dwarfs those other creatures. Mm -hmm. And then Job 41 talks about a critter called Leviathan. Now, this is a water creature, so technically it's not a dinosaur. But Leviathan is called a dragon in Scripture. And uh, this water creature actually shot fire. And that seems to surprise a lot of people. But that's not a problem for an all-powerful God to create a creature that can shoot fire. In fact, in the books of Moses, we see the uh, fiery serpents. And uh, in Isaiah, we see the fiery flying serpent. And even uh, ancient historians like Herodotus, he was a Greek historian uh, living before the time of Christ, he actually mentions some of these fiery flying serpents that still existed down in Arabia. And uh, some ibis birds would attack these things. <laughs> it, it, it was just fascinating. But, uh, you know, when we look at things like behemoth and leviathan, um, I've had people say, "Well, Bodhi, why don't why isn't the Bible just call him a dinosaur or something like that?" <laughs> uh-huh. There's a good reason for it. Yeah. Uh, if you think of early translations into the into English, they were in the 15 and 1600s. The Pilgrims, for example, brought the Geneva Bible over in in the 1500s. Tyndale had an early uh, translation, and there was the Great Bible, and the Bishop's Bible. Well, people are arguing over those translations. You know, people still argue over translations even today. But what they did back then is they got together and said, let's get a standardized translation. And they got the King James in 1611. And a lot of our modern translations still have roots and ties that go back to that King James version. Well, the word dinosaur was not even invented until the year 1841. It was a Christian man named Sir Richard Owen. He was the one who essentially got the Natural History Museum in London started and founded and uh, a great guy, but he, he invented the word dinosaur, which means terrifying or terrible lizard. So why don't we find the word dinosaur in the Bible? Well, it wasn't invented yet. It, it wasn't even around yet. So, I mean, it makes sense going, ah, oh, okay, that's why we don't find it in these Bible translations. You know, the Bible was translated long before any of that, so there's no reason to use the modern word. And so that's the primary reason for it.
0: So what day did God create dragons and dinosaurs when he created the world?
1: Well, you know, that's a great question. And I actually like the way you asked that because it's it's more uh, broad ranging. Uh, When we think of dinosaurs, remember, dinosaurs were land animals by their hip structure, by the way we define them. So they would have been made on day six. Now, if you think of dragons, remember, dragons, more of an overarching term, it would have included flying and sea reptiles. And those flying and sea reptile dragons, they would have been made on day five of creation. The other dragons, the land-dwelling dragons, would have been made on day six. So I actually like the way you asked that question. Yeah, that's what it goes back to. And it's that simple. Uh, You know, I've had people say, really, it's that easy? Yes, it's that easy. When we start with the Bible, the Bible makes sense of dinosaurs. The Bible makes sense of dragons when you just go back to Genesis and trust it in a straightforward fashion. But we're in a culture where a lot of people, they don't want to trust Genesis. But what we need to do is step back and realize there is no greater authority than God. God is the absolute authority in every single area. And we can trust Him from the first line in Genesis to the last line in Revelation. God is the absolute authority. Now, sometimes I've had people say, Ah, but Bodhi, I don't believe the Bible. I just don't trust the Bible. Here's a good question to ask. By what authority can you object to God's absolute authority? If you think about that question right there, for anyone to object to God and His Word, they're trying to elevate themselves to be greater than God. That's actually a faulty appeal to authority fallacy. So when people object to the Bible, they're actually being fallacious or being illogical and unreasonable right from the start. But we want to see people come back to God and His Word and realize that God is the authority. And because God is the authority in Genesis or on dinosaurs or on the flood or on uh, Noah... He's also the authority on salvation. And that right there is the key. Yes. Getting back to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because the Bible's true, the message of the gospel found in the Bible is also true.
0: Amen. Yes, yes. Uh, I have a few announcements I want to make, and then we'll come back and continue talking to Bodie Hodge about dinosaurs, and other topics related to God's Word. Family Shield Ministries is composed of Christians who care about families and the gospel, transforming lives now and for eternity. The Family Shield radio program is aired on more than 50 radio stations throughout the United States and on many podcast platforms. We also coordinate educational and outreach services that serve individuals and their families Thanks for listening. This week, we're giving away our newest booklet, Let's Walk and Pray, Ideas for Family and Friends Prayer Walks. To receive a complimentary copy, call the Family Shield Response Center, one 250 8416 or email us at witness 2 at gmail.com. We also encourage our listeners to sign up to receive the Family Shield email newsletter. You can sign up just by sending us your email address again to witness to family at com. Your prayers and support allow Family Shield to continue to reach and equip individuals and their families for Christ. Your support makes our work in the ripe and plentiful harvest possible. Thank you. Now I want to go back to our guest. Bodhi Hodge is a speaker, writer, and researcher for Answers in Genesis USA. He's the author of the book we're talking about today, Dragons, Legends, Lore, and Dinosaurs. Before we go on back to the topic, uh, Bodhi, I know that you they can get your book at AnswersInGenesis.org and then go to the store. Is there any place else where the listeners can get this book and other books that you've written?
1: Well, they can probably find them in uh, quite a few different places, but uh, Answers in Genesis is the one I'd like to recommend. That's the ministry that I work at. For those who don't know, Answers in Genesis is the mother ministry for the Creation Museum and for the Ark Encounter. Uh, for those who are not too familiar with that, the Creation Museum is like a walkthrough of Bible history uh, here in northern Kentucky, just outside the Cincinnati. It's actually in the Cincinnati area. And then the Ark Encounter is just south of Cincinnati, probably about 40, 45 minutes from the Creation Museum. It is a full-size Noah's Ark. We have an answer center, a zoo. It's an amazing place. Uh, I know you guys have had the opportunity to see some of these sites, and it it really is an exciting place to be.
0: It is. It really is. Most
2: definitely. We really enjoyed that. Uh, We were fortunate enough to take our youngest son to see the Creation Museum before the Ark was ever constructed but this last visit included the ark. And uh, until a person actually sees the physical size of that structure, and it's built to the specifications that God has given us through scripture, you cannot believe how big and how huge that was. So by your earlier definition of animals and how many we actually would need, it could be more than sufficient to house the animals throughout the world.
1: Oh yeah, it, it really was, you know, and and I love just looking at the sheer size of the ark. I mean I, I've been involved in it even behind the scenes, and I'll go look at the ark and I'll go, "Wow, this is just <laughs> incredible, you know and I see it over and over again. Um, but you're right, you know, when you see the the size of it and you think of the kinds that need to be on board, but then you also have to think the ark also took uh, food potentially even took some fresh water. Now, they probably could have harvested certain amounts of water. Um, you know, they had to have their own living quarters and things like that. So, you know, you see a huge ark like that, and you you realize, wow, they could have easily held all these animals and the food and, and everything that was required. It it really is an amazing uh, engineering feat. And, uh, you know, that wasn't a problem for Noah. You know, the Lord told him to do it, and he was obedient to the Lord, and he was able to do it, and it was really mean.
2: And how many years was it uh, under construction?
1: Well, for us, I mean, we had a number of years before we even announced that we were doing the project uh, where we were working with engineering firms and trying to get things figured out and design things. But when we actually started breaking ground and starting doing it, it took around three to four years to actually get it built. Now, granted, we worked with contractors. It's possible Noah worked with contractors and so forth to do certain aspects of the job. But uh, if you think Noah, his three sons, it's possible his dad and his grandfather could have helped out. There might have been some righteous people that helped out. You know, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Uh, You know, righteous people could have helped out before they were murdered or killed or died themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes we, we don't always think through all those different issues, but uh, you know, we had to do that when we did the Ark Encounter to to build that. It's uh, Kind of neat uh, thinking about all that stuff behind the scenes.
2: Right. Now, it took Noah a little over 100 years, didn't it, to create the Ark?
1: Well, God gave him the instruction um, sometime after 120-year countdown. 120 years, God said, okay, I'm going to send a flood. You know, the Lord had had enough. And that shows you the patience of the Lord. Uh, sometime after that, God told Noah to build the Ark. Now when he told Noah to build the ark he said I want you to build an ark for you for your wife for your sons and your sons' wives. In other words his sons had to have been born and they had to be old enough to be married. So a lot of a lot of uh, researchers put that somewhere between about 55 and 75 years uh when Noah was given that countdown. And Noah may well have done some research, gathered uh, some different ideas, you know, between some of that time but uh you know, for the actual build time? That's a good question. You know, like I said, you know, it took us three to four years, probably took him a little bit longer.
0: uh. (laughs) I would think so. (laughs) Can you talk for a minute about the age of the Earth? You know, when we talk about dinosaurs, most children are taught That they were extinct before man was alive, Mm -hmm. and uh, the world is millions of years old. But at the uh, when we saw your presentation, you talk, and so does Answers in Genesis all the time, about how old the Earth really is and why we can understand that dinosaurs (laughs) are not that old. Just to kind of share that. I'm glad
1: you asked that question, you know, because I was actually influenced by the secular world, too. And a lot of kids, you know, they just go off to state schools and they're taught the secular humanistic view. That's actually a religious view. It's being taught in schools uh-huh. uh, about millions and billions of years old. And I and I was taught that. I even had books on dinosaurs that would tell me that. But what we need to do is step back. Like I said, the Bible is the absolute authority on this. And when you start with the Bible, God created everything in six days, and He rested on the seventh. And that is not a problem for an all-powerful God. In fact, God is powerful enough. He could have created it in one second, but He didn't. He created over the course of six days and rested on the seventh, and He told us why He did that. In the Ten Commandments, He did that as a basis for our work week. That's why we work, you know, over the course of a week, and we ultimately have a weekend. That's actually a Christian thing. It's a Christian holiday. A lot of people don't realize that. So God creates everything in six days. If you add up the genealogies from Adam, who was made on day six, all the way up to Abraham, and the Bible gives you all that data in Genesis 5 and Genesis chapter 11, you get about 2,000 years. And most scholars, Christian or secular, agree that Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus, which is about 4,000 years ago from today. So if you add all that up, you get about 6,000 years. In fact, this is what most chronologists, Christians or Jews, have arrived at over the past 2,000 years. They keep adding it up and they get, you know, the age of creation somewhere about 6,000 years ago from today. Now, like I said, we're in a world where people preach millions and billions of years. Well, where did that idea come from? Because that's actually a new idea, It was uh, late 17, early 1800s when people started questioning the age of the earth. And we had some uh, secular people and some deists that said, hey, how about we look at this subject, but let's leave the Bible out of it. Now, as soon as you leave the Bible out of it, you leave God out of it. And that means that man's ideas are elevated to supersede God. And so we had people started saying, hey... How old is the Earth? How do we look at that? And they started looking at rock layers. And when they looked at rock layers, they assumed there was no global flood, because remember, they left the Bible out of it, and most of those rock layers that contained fossils are from the flood of Noah's day. Of course, we've had rock layers since then, but most are from the flood. But they left the Bible out of it, so they left the flood out. And they said, let's just assume these rock layers were laid down slowly and gradually over millions and billions of years. Let's assume there were no major catastrophes like a global flood. So they they can't have a global flood whatsoever. Otherwise, it destroys millions of years. And so then they try to tally all that up. And that's where the millions and billions of years comes from. And uh, in the early 1900s, they started saying, okay, well, now let's start using radiometric dating methods that only give millions and billions of years. And so then they stretch it out. It was 1956. 19, not even that long ago, 1956, when some secularists radiometrically dated a group of meteorites that didn't even come from the Earth, and they declared the age of the Earth 4.5 billion years. Now, there's a lot of problems with radiometric dating methods. They don't match with each other. You know, my my dad was alive, actually, when they did some dating on a particular volcano, and they knew exactly when this volcano went off in the 1950s, and they radiometrically dated it to about 15 million years old. So my dad would technically be 15 million years old by radiometric dating methods because he was alive when that was laid down. <laughs> uh, so it, it shows you their assumptions and problems behind that. But 1956, that's the first time anyone said the age of the Earth was 4.5 million wow. years. That's a new idea. And it comes from questionable methods.
2: And science also neglects to tell you there's uh, inaccuracy in carbon-14 dating.
1: Correct. Yeah, carbon-14 is one of many methods. Uh, Most people use the older age methods. Carbon dating is typically used for, you know, they'll get thousands and tens of thousands of, of years But most times when they want millions or billions, they go to something like potassium argon or rubidium strontium or uranium decay, some of these others that give massively old ages. But here's the problem that they find. They'll find like diamonds that they claim are in rock layers like billions of years old, and they'll find carbon-14 in those diamonds. Now, why is that significant? Well, carbon-14 should all be gone after about fifty to 100,000 years. So if they find carbon-14 in those diamonds, can they be billions of years old? No, they can't. (laughs) So it really just destroys those methods. See, those methods don't match with each other. And that just shows you some of the problems with those methods. Right, right. What we need to do is get back to the Bible. Trust you what bet, God has to bet. say. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Bodhi, our time is winding down real quick here. I wanted to ask, but I don't think I have time, about soft tissue found in dinosaurs. And we'll have to uh, encourage our listeners to get this book or other books, Dragons. Legends and Lore of Dinosaurs. It's great, we didn't talk a whole lot about what's in it, but just the pictures and all the things that have been found over the years Uh, on cave walls that prove that man was alive when dinosaurs were alive. God created not only dinosaurs, but dragons as well. So um, I just want to let our listeners know again that our guest is Bodhi Hodge. He is the author of Dragons, Legends, Lore, and Dinosaurs, and many other books. So I want to encourage our listeners to check out some of his other books. Go to answersingenesis.org and then slash store. And again, this is Kay Meyer with Family Shield. My co-host has been my husband, Chad Meyer. And thank you for being with me today, Chad. And thank you so much, Bodie, for being our guest today.
2: Thank you, Bodie. Thank you. God bless you guys.
0: God bless you too.
1: You've been listening to Family Shield, a production of Family Shield Ministries. Its mission is to educate and equip people through the power of the gospel to know Christ, grow in His Word, and to strengthen individuals and their families. To learn how you can obtain resources or support the ministry, go to www.familyshieldministries.com or write Family Shield Ministries, 7045 Parkwood Street, St. Louis, Missouri, 63116. And tune in again next week for Family Shield.